Well, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight this morning. You are our rock and our redeemer, and we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, it may be a little cliche uh, on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend to quote from letter from Birmingham jail, Uh, But when you're preaching from the book of Philippians and you're in the passage that talks about Paul writing the letter from prison, it's hard not to see the connection. And and then just beyond that, it's just so good. I want to encourage you, I commend it to you this weekend if you haven't read Letter from Birmingham Jail recently. um, it It just sort of brings you into all the different elements of what... Uh, Dr. King was dealing with, um, and it's just super powerful. I want to encourage you. You can find it online, easy to download um, as a PDF, and just take some time this weekend to give it a read. Um, and I'm going to quote from it in just a minute, but as I get older, um, what, what, when I think about, uh, you know, the life of uh, MLK, I, I think about the the inner fortitude, and I sort of become increasingly you know, uh, marveling at the depth of inner fortitude that must have been required for the work that uh, he carried out. I mean, can you imagine standing up on the one side to violent um, white segregationists and then to be abandoned at the same time by the white Christians in the same town, which is what the, the letter uh, from Birmingham jail is, is about. Um, and then feeling this tremendous sense of responsibility through it all for your brothers and sisters that you are leading into harm's way and you feel a sense of responsibility for what might happen to them. To, to be in the crucible of all that and so much more, I'm sure, is, is a marvel. And in this letter, though, we get a little window, a little insight into where that inner fortitude might be coming from. Martin Luther King writes this, he says, There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. Which is, which is really the theme of the book of Philippians. We began to study it last week. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the moors of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven. There's that concept again that we even prayed about. Called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. And the truth is, is that often when the church has been most effective in history, it's been when its people have been willing to suffer. If you are frustrated with the state of the American church, uh, like I am, 
um, then I think one of the best things that you can do, one of the best things that I can do is go with Paul, looking at the example that I just shared with you from the life of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, and then ultimately to Jesus, and learn the secret of suffering. And not just suffering, but suffering with joy. Because when you learn the secret of suffering with joy, then you'll be able to enter into the hardest spaces in our community, in our society, in our world, you know, as a healing bomb, an agent for transformation. You know, think about what's happening in our, our world today and, and contrast it with the teaching of Jesus Christ. Um, Christian nationalism is essentially a grasp for power. Uh, Trump said to Christians, white Christians, with me you will have power again, something to that effect. Uh, and, and then juxtapose with that another th- stream that's in our society right now. And, and don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to make some moral equivalence or compare these as, as equal in some, some way. But I'm just saying these two philosoph- philosophical streams are present in our society right now. And in some ways they're com- combating one another. The Christian nationalism. And then the other one is Marxism. Uh, that's manifesting itself in many ways throughout uh, our thinking, popular level books. And this is the interesting thing to me, that both of them are intended to help people grasp power. Okay, so you've got these two streams, but then bring Jesus into the mix. What does Jesus say about his own power? He says he viewed it as something that was not to be grasped. Literally that word in the Greek. And he emptied himself. And that, my friends, is the way of Jesus Christ. And as long as we have two competing philosophies that are trying to outdo each other in grasping power, we're going to descend into more and more violence and trouble. But if we latch on to the, the message of Jesus Christ... And we learn how to suffer with joy, to empty ourselves, to follow Jesus in the pathway of the you, as I've been talking about, the descent, the suffering, and waiting on God for the exaltation. If, if we can get a, a, a congregation and many congregations filled with people who know the secret of suffering and are willing to suffer in obedience, then change of a lasting and an eternal kind of nature can happen. That was just an aside. Um, one of the best things you can do is to get on this journey of, of learning to find joy in suffering. That's, that's what I'm saying. This isn't disconnected from what we're experiencing in our world right now. It's very much connected to it. Uh, Paul calls it the, you know, the secret of joy in suffering. Um, to embrace God's call in your life because um, if, if you understand that, then you'll stop resisting when God brings opportunity for you to step into a place where your suffering is going to bring around change. If you know the secret of suffering, then you'll stop resisting those opportunities to step into suffering where you can bring change. So this is absolutely critical for us um, as followers of Jesus to understand the secret of suffering. And joy in suffering so that we can embrace 
the opportunities that God brings. And I think if congregations or many congregations filled with people because they've learned the secret. And the secret, by the way, we talked about it in depth last Sunday. If you missed it, go back and listen to it if you could because it's really an introduction to this book. The secret of suffering is partnership with Christ and with others. Suffering is endurable because God is with you in Christ and because you are with one another in Christ. And it's the fellowship with Christ and with one another in the midst of suffering that brings this sort of mystical spiritual joy beyond anything that you could fabricate. That's what the message of the book of Philippians is. And if we grasp it, then we're going to become people who are willing to make a real difference in the world. And some of us are going to suffer for and with Jesus, you know, in our neighborhoods. Some are going to suffer in the midst of our families. Um, the, the, the possibilities are endless. Some of us will suffer in our workplace to make Christ known in our workplace. You know, we've got people in this congregation who are working in all kinds of remarkable fields um, in science, in education, in tech, in politics. I've been having conversations with a couple of people who are working in tech, and I'm so inspired by these two people that I'm thinking of right now because they approach their work as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And they're in the middle of these incredible moments in their companies where they're, they're seeking to represent Jesus in the midst of it all. And you know what? Sometimes it results in loss for them and suffering. And that's what it means to be an ambassador. And if you know how to suffer, you'll be able to enter into that. We've got people in the areas of, of working in justice and sanctity of life, environment, medicine. The list goes on and on. And here's the thing. I believe, and I think you do too, and this is what the Bible teaches, that the gospel and the implications of the gospel provide the deepest and most satisfying answers to all the complex questions that we find wherever we are. So being an ambassador isn't, you know, we oftentimes think, well, does that mean I got to go stand on the street corner and preach Jesus? Well, some may be called to do that. We shouldn't just dismiss that out of hand. But for most of us, it's going to be living as an ambassador in our contexts. And bringing the gospel and the implications of the gospel into that space. And I'll tell you, whether you're the sweet streeper, street sweeper or the CEO, you know, you, that work is going to require some suffering of you. If you're really going to engage it. And that's why I'm excited about the book of Philippians, because if we can learn the secret of suffering, if we can embrace the hard things and take the hard path when God calls us to do so, then maybe the American church can, be, can begin to turn around a little bit uh, and in some of the ways that it's broken and uh, make a difference in the world in ways that we haven't to this point. All right, so this is how we unleash the church, really. That's, that's the essence of it. So let's continue on the journey with Paul and uh, learning the joy, uh, uh, joy in suffering, suffering with joy. Philippians 1, we're in verse 12. We already went through verses 1 through 11 last week, kind of did an introduction of the whole book. Um, now we're going to look at verses 12 through 18. If you have your Bible, 
pull it out. I hope you can follow along in your Bible. You know, we're going to put it up on the screen, but, you know, it'll go away. And I want you to be able to think back, look back as I'm preaching on these verses. So please pull it up in your Bible if you can. And it's just going to get ingrained in your head. Nothing I say really matters. What matters is what's in the Word. And I'm just trying to elucidate what is in the Word. So, so hone in, concentrate as we read these few verses. Philippians 1 verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Remind you of the book of Philippians very quickly. The heart of it is in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Talks about the life of Jesus Christ. He's with God. He empties himself. He descends. He takes on human form. He goes to the cross and dies an atoning death on the cross. And then is exalted in the resurrection. And that forms a kind of a U-shape. And Paul is saying that the example of Christ is the example for you to pattern your life after. So moving out, he says, look at me. I'm sitting in prison, right? God is taking me on this same U-shaped journey. I, I, I came here to preach the gospel, and now I'm in prison. And he's saying, you Philippians are being persecuted. They were being persecuted in the city of Philippi, the Christians were. He says, you're living that same journey as well. And the whole reason that God has superintended this book to come all the way to us in the, in the way that it has is so that the next circle outward, we can live the journey as well. So it starts with Christ, and then the example of Paul, and then the Philippians, and now us. That's what the book is about. And in this passage that I just read to you, Paul is exemplifying in his life, what it means to suffer well and to suffer with joy. He, he, says, he says at the end of it, the very last word is that he's rejoicing despite the fact that he's in prison. And we're going to learn some lessons from Paul on how to embrace God's call when it entails suffering. And the first thing I want to say is that it includes a kind of an acceptance of the situation, of the reality, of the circumstances that we're in. Last Sunday, I invited you to pray for insight regarding what is it in your life right now that is bringing you low in the Philippians kind of sense. What's your imprisonment? What's your persecution? What's the source of your humbling, to put it in the way that Jesus is talked about in chapter 2? And I want to say today, looking at, at the example of Paul, that acceptance of what we don't want to be happening in life uh, is one of the hardest things, but it's crucial to this whole journey. Now, when stuff happens in life that we don't want to be happening to us, what do we do? We, we have all kinds of things that we say to God. We say, why are you letting this happen to me? Right? We say, um, haven't I been doing what you want? You know, I mean, 
How many times are you tempted? Like here, Lord, I, I, I did this. I followed you here. I've, I've, I've tried to do this. Um, and, and so, you know, why wouldn't you hold up your end of the bargain? Or we say to God, um, this is one that I say sometimes is, God, you're working against yourself. I was trying to do what you wanted me to do, to, to be an ambassador for your gospel, to, to live out your calling and your mission in life. And now you've sidelined me. Aren't you just thwarting your own goals? Imagine Paul in prison, tempted to ask God, you know, God, why am I sitting here in prison? You gave me a dream. We, we know in the book of Acts that what happened is that, that you know, he'd get, gotten a dream to go over to the city of Philippi. Um, and then, you know, you gave me this dream. Now he's sitting in prison, probably in, in Rome. But reflecting back on it, you know, I, I changed my plans. I crossed all the way over to what would become, you know, Europe in the future. It's going to be amazing. Lots of people and crazy stuff's going to happen. Um, here, I, here he crosses over to Philippi. Um, and now fast forward to this season and he's in jail. And he's, he's locked away in prison. And he can't continue to do the thing that he loves. But that's not what Paul says at all about his imprisonment. He says, you know, he demonstrates this sort of radical acceptance. This radical acceptance of his circumstances. He absorbs the imprisonment and he returns his mind to the purpose to which he was called. And how that purpose might even still be in the process of being fulfilled despite the wrench that's been thrown into everything. Immediately, it's, it's, like a, it's like a default mode response for Paul. You see it in the words, this little acknowledgement. He says in the very beginning, my imprisonment is for Christ. So he's already made the conversion. Here I am in prison, but I'm in, I'm, I'm in prison for Christ. I was free for Christ, now I'm in prison for Christ. And when I look at this, when I look at Paul's response, and I think about how I respond to the times in my life when, I mean, I haven't, you know, even been thrown in prison. Um, but when I think about the things that feel even in that direction, I realize that Paul has a much more robust understanding of the sovereignty of God than I have. Paul has a much more robust understanding of the sovereignty of God than I often do. Or to put it in the words that uh, MLK wrote in that amazing letter, Paul is too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. It just seems that whatever happens to him, he's able to frame it in light of the fact that God is still in control. And that kind of acceptance is an important part of the journey of suffering and obedience to the call of Christ in your life. You know, we need, to, we need to understand this properly because if we don't understand this properly, then we kind of get sideways and we miss the blessing of living under the sovereignty of God, of remembering the sovereignty of God. So let me just take a real quick step back, just a few words on this. In the long process of redeeming the world, you see, God allows evil and sin to exist, Okay? But the Bible warns us against seeing God as responsible for either of them. That's an important subtlety that you really need to take on board if you're going to become a sufferer for Jesus. Because if you don't understand that subtle distinction, 
then what's going to happen is this. When things get bad, you're going to have a hard time believing that God is in control. Because you're not going to be able to sort out why these things are happening. But if you understand that in the long process of God's redemptive plan, he stands against all evil and sin, and ultimately he will have victory over it all. If you can understand that larger framework of God's sovereignty, sovereignty, and then see whatever evil or sin is happening to you right now as being allowable for a season that ultimately one day will be overcome, then you can remind yourself of the tremendous blessing that it is to live in the sovereignty of God. And I think oftentimes when we experience suffering or hardship or imprisonment or persecution or whatever you want to call it, we don't remember that God's in control. And that diminishes our ability to handle what we're going through. Because here's the blessing of God's sovereignty. What God's sovereignty, the reminder that God is in control, the blessing of it is this, is, is the sense that, you know, I'm, what's happening to me, I feel tossed to and fro, but I'm not lost at sea. I'm not, you know, God is still, I might feel that way, but he's still got me. That's an incredibly powerful truth to hold on to when the suffering gets particularly acute, difficult. The blessing of the sovereignty of God is that God's purposes for you are not thwarted by what is occurring right now. You see that in Paul. He says, you know, I'm in prison, but you know what? The gospel is still advancing. And, and, and then to see that even the, the blessing of God's sovereignty is that even in the midst of the tragedy you're experiencing, God is able, it's the knowledge that God is able to bring blessing out of it. Okay? That, there's that subtlety piece. We don't blame God for evil and sin. But in the midst of it, we understand that, that part of what he's calling us to is to look for the miraculous ways in which he's going to bring blessing out of it, despite it, in the midst of it. So I want to give you a moment. Maybe you've thought about what it, your imprisonment is, or, or, or maybe it's an imprisonment that you've been avoiding, that you've, God's been calling you to, to take on a, some kind of suffering that you've avoided. It, what, I want to invite you, give you a moment to think prayerfully, um, to pray a prayer of acceptance. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we're not standing against evil. But oftentimes... Um, we need to go through than trying to go around the suffering that God is calling to us to, into. So just pray with me and, and think about what is it? Lord, show me my, what is my imprisonment? Or what is it that you're calling me to embrace that might entail suffering? So get that straight in your mind. And if you don't know what that is, keep praying, asking God to show you. And then the next prayer is, Lord, help me to accept. In the way that Paul accepts his imprisonment, help me to accept my imprisonment. That doesn't mean we don't try to change it. That doesn't mean we don't say that it's, e that we, you know, we go around saying that evil is good. No, that's not what we do. But it means we stop trying to pretend that it's not happening. I know that's what I try to do. When bad things are happening, I'm, I'm trying to say, oh, it's not happening. It's not, but it's happening. I don't really have control. 
So we, we stop trying to pretend. We receive it. We acknowledge it. We believe that God is still on the throne in spite of it. That it's not the end of our story. And that because of who God is, we are willing to go through it in partnership with him. And, and Lord willing with, with other believers who would walk with us. So the first part is acceptance. And this is sort of the kind of acceptance that comes in relationship to God. But there's a part two of our acceptance, which is more on the relational sort of horizontal plane. Um, there's an element, element of suffering oftentimes that connects to our relationships with other people. Imagine Martin Luther King Jr. sitting in the Birmingham jail, right? Um, we think of him as a hero now because we know the whole story. Um, but in that moment, as he wrote to those white religious leaders in the city, um, I can only imagine he must have been tempted to feel some sort of shame at being a, a colleague, a fellow pastor sitting in prison, in jail. And Paul gives us a kind of lesson on how to accept the shame that comes from our imprisonments um, as we think in horizontally in our relationships with others. Look at verse 15. Um, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaiming Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And then this little phrase, verse 18, what then? We'll come back to it. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. It's a master class for dealing with shame, with those kinds of moments when people might be looking down on you. What's happening here? He's, he's probably in Rome uh, because of the imperial guard. We, we, we think he's probably imprisoned in Rome, although it's a little bit uncertain where he's in prison. And meanwhile, while he's in prison, there's these other preachers. Uh, preachers are sinners, too. There's these other preachers in Rome um, who've in, been apparently seeing themselves in competition with Paul. And they're secretly thankful that Paul is now in prison. Because I guess it's going to be an easier time for them to get a following as he's locked away. Preachers are sinners too. Paul's been taken out of commission. So he's aware of all this, right? And, the, and, and it's shameful on some level. And what's he going to say? Well, he says, in the English translation, he says, what then? In the Greek, it's, it's two little words. T-gar. T-I-G-A-R. What then? Tigar. Paul says, Tigar. Tigar. I look like a fool sitting in prison. They're all out there preaching and having success. Tigar. It's a master class in dealing, in, in managing, in understanding what happens when you're in this kind of a moment, this imprisonment, and the horizontal relationships would lead you to experience a kind of a shame. I love the moment in, I've been at, I'm so late to the party, the Hamilton party. I'm so late to the Hamilton party. Um, but, you know, better late than never, I guess. Um, and I love that moment in Hamilton um, when Hamilton encourages this duel because um, he wants to protect the honor of George Washington. And Washington is against the duel. He doesn't want people fighting over his honor. He says, my name has been through the mud. In other words, Tigar. It's, my name's already been through the mud, he says. You don't have to go fighting duels for my honor, right? Uh, Spurgeon, one of my favorite uh, 
preachers of all time, just dealt with depression, dealt with endless criticism and all kinds of challenges. And we could quote lots of things, but I'll just give you one little toast of it. He, he's, he, says, he says to a friend, my good looks are all gone. And none can damage me now. So it's, again, it's that, it's that there are moments when you, all you can say, because your reputation is beyond your control, and all you could say is, is Tigar and leave it up to God to defend you, to fight for you, to bring you out. Um, now, you don't want to abuse it. You don't want to go around saying Tigar and, and not care about people and whatever. You know, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that there are moments, though, when you are locked away and you're rep- defending your reputation is beyond you. And that's okay. Because you know what? You're in good company when you're there. In fact, Jesus Christ, Hebrews 12.1, therefore, and then all the other witnesses, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is the point. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you may be experiencing shame as part of your imprisonment. You might experience it in your workplace as you, as you stand up for Christ, as you, you live out your faith um, in prayerful and wise ways. We're not saying just throw everything away, but to be prayerful and wise and and to, to live as an ambassador, you may be experiencing shame as a result of, of that kind of obedience. Um, I think if, if the American church turns itself around to some degree and starts to really live into that, we're going to be experiencing that more and more and more. And that will be good for our souls on some level. But if that's you this morning and you're experiencing that and you're realizing that you've been afraid of that shame, would you just take a moment in prayer and offer it up to God? Tigar. Say, Tigar, what then? Lord, my reputation, my life is in your hands and I trust you. I trust your sovereign ways. And, and remember these promises, Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Ultimately, that's the truth. But God chose, 1 Corinthians 1.27, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So don't be afraid of a little shame. And then the last thing that Paul shares and manifests and teaches us about is optimism. Optimism in the middle of the prison sentence. Um, you know, suffering with joy involves radical acceptance. That's the, and there's a, there's a vertical side to that before God. And then there's a horizontal part to that uh, with the people around you. But then it involves a kind of an optimism. Uh, there's no other, no other way to describe verses 12 uh, through 14. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This is Paul writing from prison. Okay. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers and sisters having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word 
without fear. It's almost like a reflex for Paul. When the world around him falls apart, he says, huh, interesting. God, what are you doing now? Go all the way back to the establishing of the church in in Philippi. God calls Paul to cross over to Philippi, to Macedonia, and there, you know, he's establishing the church in Philippi, and he gets put in jail in Philippi, and they're singing hymns and praising God in jail in Philippi, and suddenly this earthquake happens, and this, this part always just blows my mind. When the earthquake happens, Paul and his companions, they don't just go running out of the jail. Before they run out of the jail, they say, God, what do you want, what do you want us to do now? Interesting. We're in jail. There's been an earthquake. You know, the obvious answer is run away. But that's not what happens with Paul. Because he's so focused on the mission of God and seeing the gospel advance in ways that are maybe unorthodox, like getting jailed and then having an earthquake. He's so focused on that that he pauses and he says, what? And and then they end up staying in the jail and they lead the, the jailer to Christ. And that's part of how the Philippian church is started. Because they didn't run away from prison. They didn't run away from the jail when they had the opportunity to. So I love this about Paul. It continually convicts me um, and encourages me upward. That every time something happens, he says, interesting. Lord, what are you doing now? How are you going to advance your work through this predicament? So two things are happening right now. Back to Paul in Rome as he's writing to the Philippians in this passage. Two things are happening. He's saying the gospel is being advanced in the prison because um, he's gotten to share, the, share it with all the imperial guard. The people who are looking after the emperor, most likely. Uh, and this is really the focal point that, that makes our suffering, makes sense out of our suffering. Paul is... He's engaged in radical acceptance, but then he's also radically focused on the goal of gospel proclamation. Um, And and don't think about that in the narrow sense of standing on the street corner, although God might call you to do that, and if he does, that's great. It's a much fuller conception that I talked about at the beginning. You know, think of yourself as a gospel representative in your field, whatever that is, in all your fields, whatever they are. Your goal in life is to be a gospel ambassador wherever you are, and If your life is about yourself and not about that, about being a gospel ambassador, if your life's about yourself, then your suffering will never make sense. If your life is about yourself, your suffering is not going to make sense. But if your life is about your calling as an ambassador, then it's going to start to make some sense. Probably not all sense. There's a lot of suffering in life that we can't make sense of. That's okay. But... We want to put it in that framework. The second thing that's happening um, here with Paul as he's in this, this prison is that other believers are being emboldened to live out their calling more robustly. I love this. This is, think about this. This is, such a, this is such a powerful thing. When you are willing to suffer for Jesus and others see you suffer with joy for Jesus, then they become more bold to live for Christ in their sphere of influence. So to put that in another way, you begin to bear fruit on other people's trees when you suffer for Christ. You begin to bear fruit on other... There's something about a bold person, a person who's willing to run out in front, to be the first one to go. Um, 
I was in a paintball. I wasn't even going to share this. But I was in a paintball thing with my son years ago. And we had this little thing where there was like 30 of us. And there, was ten, there were 10 people who were locked in a house. And the 30 of us didn't have really much shelter at all. And we were trying to, you know, shoot paintballs into this place and take over this house. And we were just getting decimated. And finally, one person just starts to run full steam at the house. And the moment it happened, everybody jumped up and started running. And within like 20 seconds, we had completely overrun and taken over the house. And what it required was a boldness. Um, somebody to be bold. Somebody to be willing to put themselves out there. Somebody to be willing to suffer. That's what Paul's talking about. When, when we put ourselves out there suffering for Christ, we become an example that emboldens others around us. So what is God doing? Here's the question for application. What is God doing in the midst of your imprisonment despite your imprisonment? How is the ministry of Christ advancing in your heart and in the the lives of the people around you? Maybe even because of your imprisonment. Because you're an ambassador in chains. It's, it's a spiritual discipline to look for the ways that God is continuing to work when we're in the midst of suffering. And to look for, for the ways that maybe he's working in, in, in a manner that he couldn't do in any other way in the midst of suffering. And then to celebrate it and then to commit to continuing even deepening your willingness to suffer for Christ so that others might be emboldened by you. You know, there will be people in this congregation who are going to go out and, and do something remarkable for Christ, and it's going to entail suffering. And when you do that, maybe God's calling you right this morning. You know what it is already because the Holy Spirit's laid it on your heart. There's something you've been avoiding doing because you've been afraid of suffering, and now it's time to not avoid it anymore and to get going. And when you step out in faith to do that, you are going to inspire a whole host of people to join you, to be willing. And that's how a church changes. That's how the church more broadly changes. Don't look to the pastor only. This is all of us. Paul is calling all of us onto the U-shaped pathway of Jesus Christ. The world needs this. People who are willing to risk their jobs and their reputations and to risk being inconvenienced. I marvel at how sometimes I don't even want to suffer the minimal suffering of being inconvenienced for Jesus. Really? And then I feel ashamed of myself when I think of Christ, when I think of Paul, when I think of the Philippian church. I think of what could be. People who are willing to sacrifice. It's, it's a thing that the modern, wealthy, Western church is not good at at all. But we can get better because we have the gospel. And we have Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit. And we can learn the secret of partnering with Christ and each other as we suffer. And as we do, I believe the impact is going to be massive. So God, help us. Help us to learn with Christ, with Paul, with the Philippian church, with the people who've gone before us, like Martin Luther King Jr., who are willing to suffer for you, Lord. We, we ask that you would break down those barriers, 
Break down the barriers in my heart. Break down the barriers in our hearts that keep us from being willing to follow you on the journey that is so crucial to the furtherance of your gospel. That U-shaped journey that always involves a descent, a humiliation, some kind of a death, and an exaltation. We want to follow you. We want to go with you. We want to partner with you. And then we want to come alongside each other and support each other in the work. We pray all this in Christ's name.